Okay, this is part four of my Doubting the Law of One series. We are moving right along in the raw material. This is session three. I am commenting on it as I go to try to understand the teachings and try to point out what I take to be uh, irregularities and uh, metaphysical inaccuracies. The Law of One, Book One, Session Three, January 21, 1981. Ra, I am Ra. I greet you in love and the light of the one infinite creator. I communicate with you now. Questioner, my first question is, did we correctly perform the ritual for starting the communication? Ra, I am Ra. The placement of the artifacts designated to balance the instrument should be placed at the instrument's head for the least of distortion of effect. The remainder of the beginning account of purpose is quite acceptable for those speaking desire to serve. Otherwise, the attendant emphasis in mind complexities would not have been effected properly. We caution you to guard against those who are not wishing to serve others above all else. From taking part in the beginning or in lending their distortions of mind-body-spirit complex to any session, as we should then be unable to properly blend our distortions with those of this instrument. Questioner. Should I move the Bible, candle, and incense at this time? Ra. I am Ra. This would be appropriate. Questioner. Is this the proper position? Ra. I am Ra. Please correct the angle of the incense so that it is perpendicular to the plane of 20 degrees north by northeast. So Ra is being a little bit particular here, despite the fact that, you know, every spatio-temporal position or orientation is just a distortion, but oh well. Uh, I am Ra. Please check by eye to make fine correction. We will explain the process by which this becomes a significant distortion balancer. The incense acts as energizer to the physical body of this instrument, signifying its humanity. This is therefore a necessity that the wafted smoke is perceived from the same relative angle as the instrument perceives the opened Bible, balanced by the lighted candle, signifying love slash light and light love, and therefore give the mental and emotional, shall we call it, distortion complex of this instrument, the sight of paradise and peace which it seeks. Okay, so I want to get particular here about the grammar of this sentence, not because I think that everyone needs to speak with perfect grammar at all times, because if I seriously maintained that, I would, serious, uh, I would soon be hoist by my own petard, but rather to make my case that, you know, this uh, raw entity is, uh, whatever he is, probably not some kind of hyperdimensional alien superintelligence that reflects the melding into a single collective mind of all the members of some extremely advanced alien civilization off in some distant galaxy, which, as you may recall, is what Ra supposedly is, according to the authors of uh, The Law of One. So let's analyze this sentence. This is, therefore, a necessity that the wafted smoke is perceived from the same relative angle as the instrument perceives the opened Bible. So it seems to me that what they really want, instead of the word this, is the word it. And um, it would be used without an antecedent. It would be used as a so-called dummy it. 
um, the way that it's typically used in a subjunctive, in a, in a construction in the subjunctive mood. So I think this should read, it is therefore a necessity that the wafted smoke is perceived from the same relative angle. And strictly speaking, um, if we're using the subjunctive mood, then we should say it is therefore a necessity that the wafted smoke be perceived from the same relative angle. And um, it looks like when you read the entirety of this sentence, um, there's another verb, give, that is used in the subjunctive mood, because I assume it is, because if it isn't, then there's just a subject-verb agreement error. And so what we have at the very least here is Ra being inconsistent in the tenses that he uses to signal the subjunctive. And again, you know, grammatical errors are understandable in humans, but this is supposedly like a sixth dimensional superintelligence that is also like outside of time. What that suggests, suggests to me is that this entity has all the time in the world, as it were, to get its... Um, sentences grammatically correct um and yet it's kind of bumbling along and making the sorts of grammatical mistakes that one would predict a human to make so anyway i consider that to be yet more evidence that this is not uh this raw is not what it is purported to be that um raw is a fabrication of either the conscious or subconscious minds of uh the authors of this book Okay, moving on. Thus energized from the lower to the higher, the instrument becomes balanced and does not grow fatigued. We appreciate your concern, for this will enable our teach learning to proceed more easily. Questioner. Does everything appear correctly aligned now? To what, I would ask. If everything is a distortion, then what is the truth? Anyway, Ra, I am Ra. I judge it within limits of acceptability. Questioner. At the last session, we had two questions that we were saving for this session, one having to do with the possible capstone on top of the Great Pyramid at Giza, the other having to do with how you moved the heavy blocks that make up the pyramid. I know these questions are of no importance with respect to the Law of One, but it was my judgment, and please correct me if I am wrong, and make the necessary suggestions, that this would provide an easy entry for those who would read the material that will eventually become a book. We are very grateful for your contact, and will certainly take any suggestions as to how we should receive this information. Ra. I am Ra. I will not suggest the proper series of questions. This is your prerogative as free agent of the Law of One, having learned, understood, that our social memory complex cannot effectually discern the distortions of the societal mind-body-spirit complex of your peoples. We wish now to fulfill our teach-learning honor responsibility by answering what is asked. This only will suffice, for we cannot plumb the depths of the distortion complexes which infect your peoples. The first question, therefore, is the capstone. We iterate the unimportance of this type of data. Sounds like Ra is using value judgments here. The so-called Great Pyramid had two capstones. One was of our design, and was of smaller and carefully contrived pieces of the material upon your planet, which you call granite. This was contrived for crystalline properties and for the proper flow of your atmosphere via a type of what you would call chimney. At a time when we as a people had left your density, the original was taken away, 
and a more precious one substituted. It consisted, in part, of a golden material. This did not change the properties of the pyramid, as you call it, at all, and was a distortion due to the desire of a few to mandate the use of the structure as a royal place only. Do you wish to query further upon this first question? Questioner. What did you mean by chimney? What was its specific purpose? Ra. I am Ra. There is a proper flow of your atmosphere which, though small, freshens the whole of the structure. This was designed by having airflow ducts, as this instrument might call them, situated so that there was a freshness of atmosphere without any disturbance or draft. Questioner. How were the blocks moved? Ra. I am Ra. You must picture the activity within all that is created. The energy is, though finite, quite large compared to the understanding distortion by your peoples. This is an obvious point well known to your people, but little considered. This energy is intelligent. It is hierarchical. Okay, a little comment here. I mean, surely hierarchy must be a distortion as well. Uh, return to text. Much as your mind-body-spirit complex dwells within a hierarchy of vehicles and retains, therefore, the shell or shape or field and the intelligence of each ascendingly intelligent or balanced body, so does each atom of such a material as rock. When one can speak to that intelligence, the finite energy of the physical or chemical rock body is put into contact with that infinite power which is resident in the more well-tuned bodies, be they human or rock. With this connection made, a request may be given. The intelligence of infinite rockness communicates to its physical vehicle, and that splitting and moving which is desired is then carried out through the displacement of the energy field of rockness from finity to a dimension which we may conveniently call simply infinity. Okay, so I want to comment here again. Um, whatever a phrase like infinite rockness means, um, it seems to me that when Ra speaks of a dimension, quote-unquote, that's already a limit of sorts, uh, that we can call simply infinity, um, he's being a little bit too cavalier about the concept of infinity. I want to take this opportunity to um, share something from my notes that I've really been struggling, honestly, to convey for a long time. But um, I'm going to restate it here, and um, hopefully it will make my views on, on infinity and the logical difficulties of just, you know, presuming its possibilities in its... It, the logical difficulties of presuming the possibility of the realization of infinity within conscious uh, reality. Uh, you know, hopefully I can make these difficulties more clear by sharing this note here. Every determination is a negation and vice versa. Thus, the presence of absolutely everything is no more possible than the absence of absolutely everything. Hence the, idea, hence the identity of absolute infinity and absolute nothingness as a single, if you will, unconditioned condition, informational nil constraint, or what uh, Christopher Langan calls unbound telesis, and informational nil constraint. That's also his phrase. So to put it another way, um, you know, infinity can be seen as both X and not X absolute infinity or you know what you might call simply quote-unquote infinity i.e like absolute infinity um uh yeah that's both x and not x and nothingness is neither x nor not x 
but students of symbolic logic will know that those two constructions are logically equivalent. They're both contradiction. Um, and there are two routes to contradiction. One is by trying to realize everything at once, you know, uh, have both a table right in front of you and uh, a car, you know, in the exact same uh, point in space-time. And, and the other, well, I mean, technically you would do, you know, you would say like a car and everything that isn't a car, uh, you know, the complement of car. If you tried to realize both a car and everything that isn't a car in the same point in space-time, that's logically impossible. And then if you had an object that was, you know, neither a car uh, nor the complement of a car, you would have the exact same thing. You would have contradiction. And so, you know, there there is no possibility of just experiencing the infinite within conscious reality. Not all at once, you see. That's that's the difficulty. But but Ra does not seem aware of this difficulty at all when he speaks of infinity. And he seems to think of the true reality as nothing but a giant contradiction, as discussed in earlier episodes. Okay, let's return to the main text. In this way, that which is required is accomplished due to a cooperation of the infinite understanding of the Creator indwelling in the living rock. This is, of course, the mechanism by which many things are accomplished, which are not subject to your present means of physical analysis of action at a distance. Well, it's like, Ra, why wouldn't you elucidate us about the proper uh, means of physical analysis? But I guess... You won't, which is probably because you can't, but anyway. Questioner, I am reminded of the statement, approximately, that if you had faith to move a mountain, the mountain would move. This seems to be approximately what you were saying, that if you are fully aware of the law of one, you would be able to do these things. Is that correct? Ra, I am Ra. The vibratory distortion of sound, faith, so remember, vibratory distortion of sound just means word, vibratory sound complex, etc. It would be cool if Ra could actually use the word word um, uh, most of the time, but, you know, j just the way that he uses the common terms for most other uh, things, but, you know, he, he, he pretty much always says vibratory sound complex for word, which is slightly irritating, but okay. Um, Ra, I am Ra. The vibratory distortion of sound faith is perhaps one of the stumbling blocks between those of what we may call the infinite path. It's already what it's 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 infinite, but it's a path. Um, okay, uh, you know, path is a is a is a limitation on infinity. Um, uh, but if he just means that it's an endless path, then sure, I guess he can say that. The vibratory distortion of sound faith is perhaps one of the stumbling blocks between those of what we may call the infinite path and those of the finite proving understanding. You are precisely correct in your understanding of the congruency of faith and intelligent infinity. However, one is a spiritual term, the other more acceptable perhaps to the conceptual framework distortions of those who seek with measure and pen. Questioner. Then if an individual is totally informed with respect to the law of one and lives the law of one, then such things as the building of the pyramids by direct mental effort would be commonplace. Is that what I am to understand? Ra, I am Ra. You are incorrect in that there is a distinction between the individual power through the law of one 
and the combined or societal memory complex, mind-body-spirit understanding of the law of one. So I would just remind Ra here that there are no distinctions because everything is one. But anyway, let's return to the main text. In the first case, only the one individual, purified of all flaws, could move a mountain. In the case of mass understanding of unity, each individual may contain an acceptable amount of distortion, and yet the mass mind could move mountains. The progress is normally from the understanding which you now seek to a dimension of understanding which is governed by the laws of love and which seeks the laws of light. Those who are vibrating with the law of light seek the law of one. Those who vibrate with the law of one seek the law of foreverness. We cannot say what is beyond this dissolution of the unified self with all that there is, for we still seek to become all that there is, and still are we raw. Thus our paths go onward. Questioner. Was the pyramid then built by the mutual action of many? I love how Ra is kind of waxing poetic, um, sort of like trying to give us a dime store version of the Tao Te Ching. Uh, and, and, and this questioner is just hung up on the pyramids because they're like the cool toys. But anyway. Ra. I am Ra, in case we forgot. The pyramids which we thought slash built were constructed thought forms created by our social memory complex. Questioner, then the rock was created in place rather than moved from some place else? Is that correct? Ra, I am Ra. We built with everlasting rock the great pyramid, as you call it. Other of the pyramids were built with stone moved from one place to another. Questioner, what is everlasting rock? I would hazard to guess that it's uh, the distortion of rockness uh, wedded to the distortion of uh, foreverness or everlastingness. Uh, we'll see what Ra says. Ra, I am Ra. If you can understand the concept of thought forms, you will realize that the thought form is more regular in its distortion than the energy fields created by the materials in the rock which has been created through thought form from thought to finite energy and beingness in your, shall we say, distorted reflection of the level of the thought form. May we answer you in any more helpful way? Yeah, probably. Questioner, this is rather trivial, but I was wondering why the pyramid was built with many blocks rather than creating the whole thing as one form created at once. Ra. I am Ra. There is a law which we believe to be one of the more significant primal distortions of the law of one. That is the law of confusion. You have called this the law of free will. We wish to make an healing machine, or time-space ratio complex, which was as efficacious as possible. I want to jump in here and comment on um, this usage pattern uh, that Ra just uh, gave us an example of. He says, an healing machine. So I'm, I'm trying to guess why he's, he's using this pattern, be, uh, because he does this uh, frequently, if you read the law of one for yourself. He uses the um, form of the indefinite article A, um, ending with the letter N, so the word N, in front of words starting with H, at least some of the time, and in front of the words, in front of words starting with the semi-vowel Y. And um, some of you uh, may have noticed um, a usage pattern uh, in the English language of using 
uh, this form of the indefinite article, an, A-N, in front of uh, words uh, that start with the letter H that are more than one syllable and which specifically have stress on some syllable other than the first. For example, this is an historic occasion. You might have wondered why that form of the article is used, um, and my understanding is that in the old days, um, in certain older forms of English, um, if a word started with the letter H, but um, the first syllable was not stressed, so like the word historic, uh, then very often the H sound would sort of be omitted in the pronunciation of that word. So you would have an historic. And um, that explains why, you know, that uh, form of the indefinite article is sometimes used in front of words starting with the letter H. My guess is that Ra is using this word, uh, he's using the, the word an uh, in front of words starting with H, um, just to kind of recall the dignity and grandeur of the King James Bible, but he's not fully aware of the the actual rule, which is you're only supposed to use it in front of words starting with H uh, whose first syllable is not stressed. And one of the reasons that I come to this uh, hypothesis is that um, he also uses it in front of words like unique, like an unique. And I think that um, he is uh, thinking of, or I should say really Carla Ruckert or someone is thinking of, you know, parts in the Bible where it says, of Yahweh that he has, as it were, he hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. So in older forms of English, they would also use the, um, uh, the word an in front of words starting with the uh, letter U. Now, was that because, um, or was that, you know, despite the fact that they were still pronouncing those words with the semi-vowel ya sound, like unicorn and unique, um, as we do today, or, uh, is it because they actually said unicorn? I, I don't know. Um, but but um, this is what leads me to think uh, that Ra is trying to sound sort of, uh, uh, what's the word, J Jacobian, Jacobean? He's, he's trying to appropriate the sort of dignity and majesty of the King James Bible, but he's not like fully aware of the rules um, governing uh, the sort of, seemingly anomalous use of the uh, word an. Return to main text. However, we did not desire to allow the mystery to be penetrated by the peoples in such a way that we became worshipped as builders of a miraculous pyramid. Thus it appears to be made, not thought. Questioner. Well, then you speak of the pyramid, the great pyramid, I assume, as primarily a healing machine. And also you spoke of it as a device for initiation. Are these one and the same concept? Ra. I am Ra. They are part of one complex of love, light, intent, sharing. To use the healing proper, properly, it was important to have a purified and dedicated channel or energizer for the love, light of the infinite creator to flow through. Thus the initiatory method was necessary to, pre to prepare the mind, the body, and the spirit for service in the Creator's work. The two are integral. Questioner. Does the shape of the pyramid have a function in the initiation process? 
Ra. I am Ra. This is a large question. We feel that we shall begin and ask you to reevaluate and ask further at a later session this somewhat, shall we say, informative point. To begin, there are two main functions of the pyramid in relation to the initiatory procedures. One has to do with the body. Before the body can be initiated, the mind must be initiated. This is the point at which most adepts of your present cycle find their mind-body-spirit complexes distorted from. So again, a sort of um, pedant of English grammar will note that Ra is inappropriately uh, doubling up on prepositions here. So he says, this is the point at which most adepts of your present cycle. So whenever you have a construction like at which, um, it, it should be convertible with a construction where you, you take away which and you, you relocate the preposition further down the sentence. So if you do that, you get this is the point uh, which most adepts, this is the point most adepts of your present cycle find their mind-body-spirit complexes distorted at. You know, that's what you could do or should do. Um, that, But, you know, he also has the word from there. So if we were to, you know, really take his meaning seriously here, he's saying something which is equivalent to, this is the point which most adepts of your present cycle find their mind-body-spirit complexes distorted from at, or distorted at from, something like that. You know, it's, it's a little bit like when Paul McCarthy sings about this world in which we live in. Again, understandable for a human, but, but I, I don't expect that a hyperdimensional alien superintelligence with all the time in the world, because he's beyond the quote-unquote distortion of time. Uh, I don't expect he should be making mistakes like this. When the character and personality, that is the true identity of the mind, has been discovered, the body, then, must be known in each and every way. Thus the various functions of the body need understanding and control with detachment. The first use of the pyramid, then, is the going down into the pyramid for purposes of deprivation of sensory input, so that the body may, in a sense, be dead and another life begin. We advise at this time any necessary questions and a fairly rapid ending of this session. Have you any query at this time space? And so... um. I'm going to share my suspicion here that, see, at first I didn't realize why he was alternating between space-time and time-space uh, in what seemed to be an arbitrary way. And then I began to suspect, as I do now, that when he says time-space, he just means time. And when he says space-time, he just means space. Have you any query at this time-space? Questioner. The only question is, is there anything that we have done wrong or that we could do to make the instrument more comfortable? Ra. I am Ra. We scan this instrument. This instrument has been much aided by these precautions. We suggest only some attention to the neck, which seems in this body distortion, to be distorted in the area of strength slash weakness. More support, therefore, to the neck area may be an aid. Questioner. Should we have the instrument drink the water from the chalice behind her head, or should we have her drink from another glass after we charge it with love? Ra. I am Ra. That and only that chalice shall be the most beneficial, as the virgin material living in the chalice accepts, retains, and responds to the love vibration activated by your beingness. I am Ra. I will now leave this group rejoicing in the power and peace of the one creator, Adonai. Okay, so that concludes session three. I want to take this opportunity 
um, to discuss a little bit more of what I take to be the metaphysical errors that Ra makes, uh, which in addition to his sort of lapses in grammar um, can be uh, taken as evidence that Ra is not the real McCoy. He is either some kind of, you know, himself, he's, he's, he's either himself some kind of negative entity or demon, um, a, hy a hypothesis which I also regard as unlikely, uh, just because I assume that demons are much smarter than we are and don't mess up grammar either. Um, or Ra is, um, you know, as I've said before, the fabrication of either the conscious or unconscious mind of one or more of the authors of the Law of One. Or there's, I suppose, the possibility that there is some kind of demon or non-human intelligence which um, is not dictating the book exactly, but just kind of inspiring it um, by suggesting themes, but not providing um, Carla Ruckert with the actual words, uh, the, the exact phraseology in which he wants his ideas to be conveyed. This is always possible. It just um, goes against what I understand uh, to be um, the way that this book was supposedly dictated. My understanding is that um, Carla Ruckert said that, uh, and, and all the authors of this book said that um, Ra was dictating this book word for word or whatever non-human intelligence they were supposedly receiving this message from was specifying the language um, and was not merely suggesting themes that were left up to the verbalization powers of the um, medium herself. And um, this this point comes up uh, specifically a few times in the process of the book's di dictation, um, which you'll see if you read the book yourself. Another thing that you'll see come up if you read the book um, is this idea that morality or good and evil reflect uh, sort of uh, two sides of a pole or polarity. They're almost like a battery, which can have positive or negative charge. Now, in previous episodes, I've gone to some length to explain why I do not believe uh, that evil or suffering um, are best characterized as the opposite of the good. I think that uh, the most clear-headed way of conceptualizing evil and suffering um, is as uh, the absence of the good. And this might seem like a semantic difference or a quibble, but I, I would suggest, um, even if it is only a semantic difference, the fact that Raw's uh, conceptual framework um, is not as sophisticated um, as it might be is yet more um, indirect evidence that, you know, he's, he's not the real thing. But, um, you know, I, I think that this really is a, a distinction which matters, and it, and it has um, genuine meta-ethical implications. For example, I think that, you know, moral philosophers who speak of cases of so-called wrongful life um, can only be operating from a conception of morality that understands um, evil and suffering as the opposite of the good as something which can cancel out the good and leave us with a negative balance sheet. Whereas on my view, if you 
understand, um, first of all, if you understand evil as a subset of suffering, an intentionally caused version of suffering, um, and you understand suffering as the absence of the good, then there never is any really clear sense in which you can say that um, in a given life, um, the suffering uh, outweighs the good that was present in that life, especially when um, the good requires some kind of complement against which it can be discriminated as a matter of uh, predicate logic. So in other words, in a sort of Taoistic sense, if there's good, then there's also not good. Or, and, and, you know, that is what I would uh, argue to be suffering. So if there's good, then there's suffering. And um, there's, there's no saying that the absence of the good exceeds the good. A human life is not like some kind of tank of water in which um, the proportion of the tank um, filled by water can exceed uh, or be less than uh, the portion of the tank uh, filled by air, which you can think of as the absence of water. Because a human life is obviously a much more multivariate space than, you know, just like a, a water tank. Again, the good requires its complement even to be discernible as what it is. If there is no suffering, then there's no good either. And um, I recognize that this is not the sort of traditional Christian position which seeks to have it both ways, uh, to have uh, evil as a privatio boni or privation of the good. And, and yet, you know, the, the, the tradition tries to have it both ways and say that uh, evil cannot exist without the good, but the good can exist without evil. But I don't think that that is ultimately coherent. So to sort of uh, strengthen my position here, I'm going to read the following note. What is suffering? Note, not pain, which isn't really what we think of as pain, unless accompanied by suffering. So already right here, I have to do a quick little explanation. Um, I'm distinguishing between pain and suffering here and saying that not all forms of pain necessarily involve suffering. That is sort of paradoxical assertion that not all forms of pain genuinely feel painful. I believe that there are people with neurological disorders um, that uh, prevent them from feeling any actual suffering in response to pain. They, they feel pain, but they don't feel bad about it. And they don't take the pain stimulus um, as an actual impetus uh, to do something. Now, I could be wrong about that. Um, that could be a misunderstanding, uh, and, and there might be no such people. Um, but uh, even if uh, there are no such people, this, this at least seems to me conceptually possible. It seems conceivable. But anyway, grant me for the moment uh, a, a distinction between pain and suffering. Uh, what is suffering? Inspect it phenomenologically, and you'll find it consists in not being able to obtain something desired. Yeah, so in other words... Every time you're suffering, you're, there's an intentional object of the suffering, something that you wish you could have. Now suppose you have something that you value and it's taken from you. You desire that thing, but you can't have it, and therefore you are suffering. Suffering is a privation of the good, QED. It is not logically possible for you not to suffer, if a thing that you value sufficiently is withheld from you. So again, just look at the way that emotions are actually experienced. Um, 
if 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 evil and suffering were not just the absence of the good, but somehow a second ontologically separate thing, a counter substance, then to me it stands to reason that we could remove all the evil and suffering from an individual's life and not alter the amount of uh, good feelings that they experience in their life and vice versa. We should be able uh, to remove all the good feelings from a person's life and, and not disturb or alter the amount of negative emotion that they feel in their life. But, you know, in, in reality, when we attend to the phenomenological content of our feelings, we notice stuff like if you are infatuated with someone, you love them a lot, um, and you, you're not with them, then their, their mere absence feels painful to you. It can feel intolerable. Now, granted, it might be that as a matter of metaphysical fact, good and evil are two different things. Uh, suffering and pleasure are two different things. Um, and they just happen to co-vary with each other um, in the pattern that you would expect um, if uh, suffering was the absence of the good, um, even though they're actually two metaphysically different things. And one could posit that uh, this is so uh, as a sort of contingent fact of evolution, that that suffering is experienced as the absence of the good, but this fact um, is, is not metaphysically necessary. It is just a contingent fact. Um, I, I suppose, at least on the surface, this is a position that it seems possible to take. However, at the very least, it, I, I should note that it seems to run afoul of Occam's razor, which is the principle that in any given explanation for some phenomenon, we should not multiply explanatory entities beyond necessity. Or, you know, that in some sense, the simplest explanation uh, should be preferred over uh, more complex explanations, all else equal. The idea or the explanation that we experience the absence of good things as painful because pain and suffering are the absence of the good is just um, simpler and cleaner than the explanation that um, in practice we find um, that um, the distinct substance or phenomenon of pain um, occurs um, in the absence of the phenomenon of positive emotion, but this is due only to some kind of accident of evolution. And as a matter and as a matter of metaphysical reality, we can remove all the positive emotion from a person's life without disturbing or altering the amount of negative emotion and vice versa. Like a world with only pain and no uh, positive emotion is logically possible, even if that's not the world we find ourselves in. And a world with only uh, pleasure and no pain is also logically possible, but that's just not the world we find ourselves in. You know, that that is, um, at the very least, a more complex explanation um, for the way in which our emotions work than the explanation that I'm offering is. But um, you'll see throughout the Law of One that 
Raw is very much wedded to the sort of metaphysic of um, evil and good as two opposite sides of a single pole or polarity. And he really has this doctrine that, um, again, as I mentioned before, there are stages or cycles uh, through which um, uh, incarnate souls progress. And the end of these cycles is called a harvest, which is like almost like a graduation. And uh, Ra is wedded to the idea that souls choose a path, either a, a path of service to self or service to others. Uh, and, um, you know, service to others is uh, the good half of the polarity and service to self is the bad half. And they polarize along, you know, either one of these uh, dimensions of, of the pole or directions, I should have said. And he really specifically takes the view that uh, if a soul is um, just more than 50% uh, service to others uh, than it is service to self in its orientation, then it is harvestable um, along the path of service to others. But that if a soul uh, has elected uh, the path of service to self, it must be more than 95% a service to self in its orientation. Why? I don't know, because percentages, I guess. But but you'll really that really shows the extent to which this polarized conception of morality pervades Ra's thinking, because um, such 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 a framework, such a, such a system of soteriology, if you will, is is not conceivable. Um, uh, given an understanding of, uh, you know, evil and suffering as the absence of the good. I mean, again, some might be strongly tempted to take Ra's view over mine, just because um, sometimes it seems possible to experience the absence of positive emotion without feeling negative emotion. But there are other ways of making sense of that than, you know, by positing this whole elaborate metaphysics where evil is the second thing in addition to good. You know, what I think is going on in a case where uh, someone uh, does not experience some prospect as being either good or bad is that um, they are taking their present situation, um, which is hypothetically good to a certain degree, and then they're comparing it against some other prospect or situation and seeing how desirable or undesirable it is based on how much better or worse it is than what they currently have. And I would say that um, a prospect is experienced as neither good nor bad, but just sort of neutral, when it doesn't seem to be clearly better or worse than what is experiencing. But, you know, you can, you can frame that as it being equally good as what one is experience, experiencing. So anyway, um, yeah, I think that that's, that's all another metaphysical reason to doubt that uh, the law of one was really um, uh, dictated or inspired by an interdimensional alien intelligence. Because even if it was just inspired by, you know, such an alien mind, one would assume the metaphysics wouldn't be all wrong. Again, for more elaborate arguments, um, see my earlier episodes. So if an alien didn't uh, dictate or inspire it, then who, who did produce it? I think uh, now is an appropriate time to speculate a little bit 
as to who the true author of the Law of One is. I'll start by noting that anyone who's familiar with language sample analysis um, knows that there are differences in the way that men use language and women use language. Um, I can only really speak to these differences as they exist in English. Um, but I know, for example, that one of the differences between men and women is that men tend to use more nouns and sort of um, nominal phrases or clauses. The way that men use language suggests um, a greater amount of reification or concretization um, of ideas into linguistic substantives or, or nouns. And um, the way that the law of one is written, um, it is uh, much more consistent with that male pattern of language use than it is with a female pattern of language use. So I, I think that if someone were to just hand me the law of one, just the text, and not tell me anything about who authored it, I would say that a man wrote it uh, rather than a woman, um, or at least that, you know, it was statistically more likely that a man had written it. And um, the, the logical next step here, um, if one suspects uh, Carla Ruckert, uh, a female, uh, to, to be the author, is to uh, watch interviews of her and see how she uses language and see uh, whether her speech patterns are broadly similar to the uh, speech patterns used or recorded in the Law of One. Uh, so I did watch a couple interviews of Carla Ruckert, and um, I uh, I concluded to my own satisfaction, at least, that her speech patterns and the ways in which she thinks are uh, sufficiently similar to those expressed in the Law of One that she can plausibly be regarded as, as its author. It, it would have been one thing if... Um, the way that she expressed herself was um, very, um, if you will, female, typical, sort of more emotive and relational. And I know I'm using stereotypes here, but I am just talking about general patterns. I'm not talking about each person because there are exceptions, and I think Carla Ruckert is an exception. Instead, what I saw in the way that Carla Ruckert expresses herself is a very analytical and philosophical turn of mind. You know, clearly, whoever um, wrote the Law of One, um, well, they had to be very intelligent, um, but specifically, they, they kind of had to think like a philosopher does. And, you know, women and men have the same average IQ, from what I understand, but there are disciplines which are just male-dominated for whatever reason. Um, you know, like chess is very male-dominated, and... Uh, to my understanding, uh, so is philosophy. Now, of course, there's all different reasons why that could be. There could be IQ differences at the tails of the bell curve. There could be just differences in the way that men and women uh, think and use language and gain knowledge about the world so that, you know, uh, a, a female-type philosophy or feminist philosophy, if you will, just hasn't ever been sufficiently represented in philosophy. Um, and it, it, for reasons of sexism, which is also a possibility, or it could be um, something you know uh, different than any of these explanations. And and uh, we should note that none of these explanations is, you know, they're they're not mutually exclusive.
um, more than one of these could be operative. So I'm not, I'm not claiming to know why uh, philosophy is male-dominated um, or, or why women who um, uh, think and express themselves um, in quote-unquote philosophical ways are um, exceptions or seem to be exceptions. I'm just noting that they do. And and again, if someone had given me this this text and just told me to guess who had written it, I wouldn't have guessed it was a female author. Um, but, uh, you know, there are always exceptions. And, and indeed, when you look at the interv interviews of Carla Ruckert, um, she uses language in ways that are very similar uh, to the law of one. And she seems or seemed, uh, because I believe she's passed on, uh, she seemed to be very analytical and, and philosophical in the way that she um, approached reality. Again, if if um, uh, Carla Ruckert had had a very different personality than what you see reflected in The Law of One, I would think twice, and I would think maybe Don Elkins was the author. And maybe, for all I know, they did get together and they just... Uh, cook the whole thing up as a hoax, but somehow, somehow I doubt it. I think it was all sincere, and and I I'm really at this time at least most persuaded by the idea that uh, raw is something like the subconscious um, fabrication or product of Carla Ruckert's mind, and um, she knew Don Elkins closely, and she was uh, influenced by his thinking, so um, his. His thought is to a certain extent reflected in her own. And in some way, I suppose, you can regard the dialogue between Don Elkins and Ra as a dialogue between Don Elkins and a certain externalization slash outsourcing of his own mind. It's, it's kind of like Don Elkins um, trying to make sense of reality with another version of Don Elkins. To, to an extent. Um, although, I mean, really, I suspect Carla Ruckert was just um, a, a, th a thinker of equal or greater sophistication um, uh, to Don Elkins. And um, so, you know, really, mostly you can see it as a conversation between Don Elkins and Carla Ruckert. So anyway, um, that's just um, sort of what I think as of right now. Um, I don't know how many more sessions of the Law of One I'm going to read. I know I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, maybe I'm going to be a little bit more targeted uh, in the way I select the next session to read. Um, I might not go in strict uh, chronological order. But um, uh, for now, I just want to thank you for listening. And um, I'll see you next time.